How do you think the world's gonna end? How do I think the world's gonna end? No one knows when the world's gonna end. I think and the world's gonna end because of the bomb. Chemical warfare accompanied with extreme poverty. I don't think it's gonna end. I don't know. I mean, I believe in God, so maybe Jesus come back and the devil shows up because I believe he's here already and uh, they get into a big big fight. I believe in the Bible so I believe that it's going to be Christ is going to come back and in the twinkling of an eye it's all going to be over with. Some people believe that Jesus is going to come back and save the world. What do you think about that? I believe it's a lie. I don't, I don't know what to believe, you know. Uh, you know, for, for those that believe, I think, yes, I believe that it would be true, yeah. If, if you knew, like, Jesus was coming back, or like, the end times are coming tomorrow, happening tomorrow, how would you live your life differently? I would continue living the life I have lived, because I think I'm living the life I want to live. I just want to see my parent. They're in Korea right now. I just uh, hope and pray he has mercy on me, and uh, that's pretty much it. Well, I want to welcome you to our brand new sermon series. It's going to be a fascinating study in the last book of the Bible, but last does not mean least, all right? It's one of the most important books of the Bible for us to look at. Unfortunately, though, Revelation has kind of a bad reputation. And what I mean by that is some people look at the book of Revelation and they see it as a book for Bible nerds, right? That is people who like to talk about numerology and imagery I mean, the book of Revelation is filled with all kinds of Old Testament allusions, and we'll be seeing a lot of that in the book. And so people like to interpret it, and they like to discuss it and argue over it, which then leaves other people to saying, you know, I just avoid the book of Revelation because it's just too complicated and too confusing. So we don't have time, but if I were to ask you what your view of the book of Revelation is, how would you respond to that? Well, I want you to know that if it's foreign to you, if it's confusing to you, if you do think it's for Bible nerds, that while there are some things that are hard to understand in it, it is nonetheless a very practical, relevant book that speaks to our hearts and our lives in this day and in this age. And so we're going to get a lot of truth out of this book that we can apply right away. Now, I also want to preface everything I'm going to say by acknowledging the fact that we're going to do more of an overview of the book. There's not enough time to go into all the details of every verse. You don't want me to do that, and I don't want to do that. Unless you're a Bible nerd, and no, I'm just kidding, all right? Then uh, the second thing I want to say is you could put 10 godly theologians with their PhDs in one room and they would all come up with some variations of certain aspects of the book of Revelation that would be different from the other one. So I want to acknowledge the fact that as we go through this book, I'm probably going to say some things at times that those of you who have studied Revelation and prophecy will look at and you'll go, eh, I don't agree with that. And what we're going to do is we're just going to simply agree to disagree. Is that okay? And when the Lord returns, you'll see that I was right. <clears throat> Maybe. 
All right? So, are you ready to get started? All right, then take your Bibles and turn open to the book of Daniel. Say, hey, wait a minute. You said it was about Revelation. Well, it is about Revelation, but we're going to start in the book of Daniel this weekend because I want to set the book of Revelation up with a prophecy out of the book of Daniel. So you cannot understand the New Testament if you don't also understand the Old Testament. And you cannot understand prophecy in the New Testament, whether it's the words of Jesus or his servants, uh, Paul or his uh, servant Peter or John, if you don't understand how God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. It's like opening up a novel and reading it from the middle or watching a movie from the middle. It's really hard to know what the plot is, hard to figure out who the characters are. So much has already been said and done, you're missing a ton in the story. So we have to have a little bit of background from the Old Testament. In fact, I want to give you a little bit of a model for thinking about prophecy that we'll use quite a bit as we go through the book of Revelation. I'm going to draw it up here. And so if you want to uh, draw along with me, you're welcome to. But let's just think about, let's think of a highway, all right? And at the end of the, the road, there's this, these mountains, like the Rocky Mountains. And uh, you're in your vehicle, right? Maybe you're on your summer vacation. How many of you are going on a summer vacation? Wow. How many of you are staying home because living in Minnesota is a vacation? All right. How many of you don't get a vacation? Eh, crybabies. Anyway, all right, just kidding. So you're on the road, right? And you've got your... You've got your family in there, and you're heading out to wherever you're going, okay? I want you to think about movement forward as the future, okay? I want you to think about where you are on the road as now. And then as you look at the rearview mirror, I want you to think of everything behind you as the past. So whenever we talk about prophecy, we have to keep all these things in view. That is, what's coming up ahead of us in the future you know, as you look down the highway, and I think about some of the trips I've had out west, you can look a long ways down, and you see the mountains, but you don't see much detail. And a lot of times in prophecy, there are things we don't understand, and that's where we get into arguments and difference of opinions that will become much clearer when the events or happen or when they're close to happening. Then there's now. That's the things that are happening right now. The Bible speaks to what's happening right now. The book of Revelation was written and needs to be interpreted to what it meant in the first century because it was written to an audience living then. But it's the word of God and it applies, therefore, to every century, to every generation that's lived. So what's exciting about the book of Revelation, it does apply to us today, but it also applies to the future. But there's a lot that we're going to see, like in just a few moments of the book of Daniel, for us, it's the past. For those to whom it was written, it was the future. So we look in our rearview mirror and we can see a lot that's already happened. And this gives us kind of a full picture of what God is doing. So I want you to kind of keep that in mind. Now let's look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 starts with King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He's had a really bad dream. And he wakes up the next morning and he says to his wise men, he says, I want you to tell me what my dream means. And they said, okay, king, tell us your dream. We'll give you the interpretation. He said, I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me the dream that I had. If you're smart enough to figure out what it means, you're smart enough to tell me what it was. And they freak out, wouldn't you? They're like, no king has ever asked that before. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, well, here's the first one. Give me the answer. If you don't give me the answer, I'm going to have you all killed. If you give me the answer, you're all going to be rewarded. 
Well, word gets to Daniel, who is this Hebrew young man that's been transported with a bunch of other people from Jerusalem and resettled in Babylon. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar did with the, the upper crust, the elite, the smart folks that were coming from the various nations he conquered is he would then try to uh, brainwash them to become good Babylonians and to assist in helping him run the kingdom. And that's what's happening in Daniel's life, except he refuses to be brainwashed. He's so committed to God and his word. And so when Daniel finds out that the order is that all these people are supposed to die, and that means him as well, because he's considered one of the wise men in training, he says to the commander, Ariok, give me some time. And he calls his three friends, and they pray and they fast, and they say to God, God, what is the dream and what does it mean? And God reveals the dream to, Nebuch- uh, to Daniel and his interpretation. So he appears before Nebuchadnezzar and he says, I have the dream that you dreamt, God gave it to me, and I'm going to give you the interpretation. In fact, here's what he says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 27. He says, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now, I will tell you your dream and vision you saw as you lay on your bed. So he gives God the glory. He doesn't take it to himself. He says, only God can reveal this. And I'm going to tell you that what you saw with this massive statue, and then you saw this stone cut out of a mountain but without hands that smashes the statue to bits and pieces. And so he starts telling him about this. And so I'm going to draw it up here, and I've advanced my drawing skills from stick men to block figures, all right? Kind of go in the direction of Legos. So he says, first of all, he said, you saw a head of gold when you saw that statue, and that head of gold is you. And we know that the kingdom of Babylon or the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar uh, lasted from about 626 B.C. to about 539 B.C., We think of that as Babylon, all right? Then he said, you saw chest and arms, and and the chest and the arms that you saw were of silver. I'm not good at drawing arms and hands. That's good enough, all right? And he said, this represents the um, Medo-Persian Empire. It became known as the Persian Empire eventually. And the dates for that are somewhere between 539 B.C. and about 332 B.C. Then he said, you saw a belly, all right, and you saw thighs of bronze. Now, what are the belly and the thighs of bronze a picture of? Remember, to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, everything from here on out is future. For you and me, however, we know history's gone by its rearview mirror. We know about the Babylonians, we know about the Persians, and we know about the Grecian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great, remember? He dies at a young age. And his empire, which is really the known world, is split among four of his generals. If we take the last dynasty of one of his generals, the Seleucid dynasty, we can date the Grecian Empire from about 332 B.C. all the way down to about 63 B.C. when that ends. These are all B.C. at this point, all right? So that's the Alexander Grecian Empire. Then he says, and you saw legs of iron 
and you saw feet with ten toes made of iron and clay. So now we have the legs of iron and the feet, right, with ten toes of iron and clay. So the question is, what are the legs? What do they represent? We look back in history and we realize this represents, again, the rearview mirror, this represents the Roman Empire that existed. And the dates are, it's hard to date the Roman Empire because you're, you're, the question is, you're talking about the founding of Rome, you're talking about its greatest years, you're talking about the entire time from, from when it started to when it fell apart. Let's just take its best years. If we date the best years, we're looking at about um, 31 BC all the way to about 476 AD, all right, are kind of the prime years of the Roman Empire. Now, all of that, again, in the rearview mirror to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, they don't understand any of what this is going to be. They just know that after Babylon comes other powers that will be very great, other nations, other empires. What we want to focus on for our study for just a few minutes are the feet of this character with the ten toes, which is a strange mix. It's a strange mix of iron and clay, which doesn't bond together, which means that there's something weak about the foundation or what the statue is being based on. Now, Daniel has other kinds of dreams. Just read the book. Read Daniel chapter 7, where he sees a fourth beast that has ten horns. Ten toes, ten horns. Scholars have wrestled with, what does that mean? Who does it represent? And many believe that it's a picture of a kingdom that is in our future. A kingdom yet to come. One last global empire pitted against God himself for every empire has always been pitted against God because it's not based on God and his word and so this future global empire is yet to come and we'll encounter it when we look at the book of Revelation now I want to give you one of the proponents of this view he's a Bible teacher well-known David Jeremiah he writes a lot uh, prolific author he writes on prophecy he can kind of surmise this more specific view of the ten confederation or the ten states or nations that come together to form this end-time nation led by the Antichrist. Here's what he says. He says, the Bible clearly teaches that in the end times, during the times of the Antichrist, there will be a ten-kingdom confederacy that rules during those final days. Many have seen in this prophecy of Daniel's a picture of the renewed Roman Empire in the end times. Not the literal Roman Empire, but where it used to be, a coming together of those nations now. He says, there has been no other world empire since the Romans. So where are we now in God's prophetic picture? We are on the verge of that revived Roman Empire consisting of ten parts or ten nations. Now, if you've studied, read about prophecy, seen some of the popular books or series that are out there, they oftentimes talk about the fact that the European Union could be the beginnings of this coming together of various nations, this amalgamation, this strength and weakness combined together. So there's been all kinds of books written about that. And while I don't want to be real specific about it, because I think it's something we have to wait till we get closer to it, it is interesting to watch how Europe is being shaped these days. If you watch it carefully, you'll see that there is a consolidation of power. And even though England is, quote, leaving, you know, the Brexit 
all right? The Labour Party leader in England said, you know something? The Brexit's not going to be as severe as everyone thinks. We're still going to work with the other 27 nations. In fact, we're going to be even stronger as a result of this. We'll see what happens. But if you read what's going on with Germany and France right now, and their aggressiveness toward forming a European army, a single European army, in response to Putin and what's going on with Russia and the backing away from NATO by the states right now, it's fascinating to see how everything seems to be continually shaped and allowed to be shaped by God toward that final battle that we'll talk about when we get to the book of Revelation. But that's not my purpose in putting all of this up. My purpose in putting all of this up, because we're going to deal with the world versus God in the book of Revelation, is I want you to take away a couple of lessons from this. And the first lesson that I want us to take away in preparation for Revelation is this, that human government stands on a delicate foundation. Human government stands on a delicate foundation. It always has. It always has. As early as Genesis chapter 11, the people came together, they all spoke one language, and they built this tower called the Tower of what? The Tower of Babel, right? It was an attempt to erect the tower up into the heavens. It was kind of like, it was kind of like saying, we're large, we're in charge, we're humanity, we're going to consolidate together. And I don't know if it was their way of saying, we won't let a flood ever happen again, or we're going to climb our way to the skies and be our own gods. But when God sees them do it, it says that God came down and God confused their language. And so they couldn't work together anymore. And I take the story very literally. I don't see it as a myth. And the reality is God did us all a favor when he did that. Because who knows what would happen if man had consolidated themselves together and gone in full tank rebellion against God. Humanity would have been wiped out. But God's not going to send another flood. Remember the rainbow. And so God confuses their language. But mankind has continued after Babel to try to build its towers or its empires or its nations or its power structures. And it always goes south. It always goes against God because it's built on the wrong foundation. Just like the statue. What's, what's holding up the statue? Iron and clay. Pretty shaky stuff. Mud. Doesn't work too well. Reminds me of the story of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Remember that story? And you learn perhaps a song for those of you who grew up in the church in Sunday school about the wise man who built his house upon the... You didn't go to Sunday school, did you? <laughs> the wise man built his house on the... Rock, very good, right? And the foolish man, he built his house upon the sand. And the rain came down, the winds blew, and the flood came about. And the house that was built on the rock stood. Very good, all right? But the house that was built on the sand, the shifting sand, what happened to it? It was washed away, right? It just fell apart. What was Jesus' point in that story? His point was build your life on a sure foundation. Anchor it to something solid. And of course, he's talking about himself. He's talking about the word of God. So the question I ask myself and I challenge you is, what are you building your life on right now? Even if you're a follower of Christ, what honestly are you building your life on right now? What are you pinning your dreams and hopes on? Your 401k, your 403b? On money, on success, on reputation, where you live, what church you attend. What am I building my, what am I building my family on, my marriage on? 
What are we building our church on? God's church, really, not ours. What are we building the future on? And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a passage of scripture we looked at last weekend. We talked about King Solomon. And he comes to the end of his life, and he's not done very well. And he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's kind of a look back, and he says, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. Looking back, here's what I really understand life is about. Here's what he said. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Say it with me. Fear God and keep his commandments. One more time. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Because in the end, God's going to judge everything, he says. So he says, life comes down to two things. Fear God, keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. Now, just so you know, I practice what I preach. I've taken, those, I've taken that verse, and those, those two phrases, and they've now become very much a part of my daily prayer life. I'm praying that verse for myself, for my family. I pray that verse for you, for our pastors, our elders. God, help us to fear you, reverence you, respect you, be in awe of you, and obey your commandments. Man, if we just did those two things, life, our families, our marriages, everything would go so much better, wouldn't it? Fear God, keep his commandments. And the reason why human empires and human governments fail is because they don't fear God and they don't establish themselves on his commandments. If a nation would, the nation would be blessed. Doesn't have to be Israel. Doesn't have to be Israel. I believe only Israel is God's chosen nation. But any nation that would say, we're going to fear God and keep his commands, will be blessed. Because it works, which takes us to our second thought. No human form of government works. No human form of government works. Do I need to say it again? No human form of government works. Now, I, I am pro-democracy. I think democracy is great. I'm all for democracy. But I'm here to tell you democracy ultimately will fail. Do you know why it'll fail? Because of the person next to you and you and me. We're human beings. We are sinful by our nature. And when a bunch of human beings get together and form a government and form a nation, and they don't fear God, and they don't base anything on the word of God, ultimately that, that form of government is going to fail because we're greedy, we're selfish, because we love power, because we will always make decisions that are going to benefit us. I mean, it's, it's a disaster in the making. I want to share with you a quote. It comes from the 1700s. It's been attributed to different people, so I, 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 don't, I don't want to say, you know, it's from this person, because one of you come up and say, well, I heard it was from that person. The point is, it was made in the 1700s. It's profound, and it's prophetic. Here's what it says. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most money from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy followed by dictatorship coming to a nation near you. It's just history. Learn, well, you know, we should learn from history, right? So, because history repeats itself so often. Because we don't learn. Well, I love my country and I love democracy. The reality is human government is weak because of humans. And isn't it interesting, this quote, how the economy is a tie to it? 
And as we look at the book of Revelation, you're going to discover that the economy is very much part of prophecy because the economy, money is used to manipulate people. It's used to consolidate people. It's used to get people to do things people ordinarily wouldn't do. So how, do the, you know, how is there a worldwide rebellion? How can globalization take place? How can there be this final man, you know, man versus God event? The economy is very much part of that. There's a cartoon that appeared in Russia many years ago, and, and I'm not picking on Russia. It's just where the cartoon was. We're, we're going to apply it in just a moment. But the essence of the cartoon was two lines that people were in. One line led to, and the cartoon said, freedom. The other line led to, and the cartoon said, sausage. Which line do you think had the most people? In the line going toward freedom or the line going toward sausage? The line going toward sausage. Why? Because when you're hungry, you want your belly filled. Even at the price of freedom. So here's the question. What line are you in? What line are you in? If you had a choice to be in a line where you're able to talk freely about God, but it means you're going to be ostracized from your family. It means you'll get no inheritance. Which line are you going to be in? I've met people around the world who face that option, who've lost their family and lost their inheritance because they're following Jesus. How about you? Revelation was written to the first century believers as much as it was written to us. Many of them faced the same situation. Do I follow Christ and be ostracized for my family? Or for some people, in order to proclaim Jesus and talk about him, which Jesus commands us to do, it means they may spend some time in prison. I have met them. I've met men in Vietnam and women who spent years in prison for proclaiming Christ. Now I know other people that I've met who spent years in prison because they proclaim Christ. Which line are you going to be in? If I don't want to be in prison, if I don't want to spend my life there, then I'm going to keep mum about Christ. I'm not going to talk about my faith. I value my, my freedom out of jail. Or I know people today who, because they identify themselves as Christians, are, are beaten for it. I've met them. I've seen their pictures. And many who have been tortured and killed for that. Now, which line do you want to be in? The line that says, don't call yourself a Christian, and you'll live a free life. You won't be beaten. You won't be put in jail. Call yourself a Christian. You'll be beaten. You might even be killed. Which line are you going to be in? That is what people were wrestling with when the book of Revelation was written. Which line do I want to be in? The line that follows Jesus and may lead to my, my persecution and my death? Or the line that if I deny Jesus or try to live it secretly, I'm able to kind of exist and buy and sell and have a job and be accepted by others? And while that seems so foreign to you and me, I want you to remember your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world right now, many of them face this dilemma. They are going through their own tribulational period. So let's be careful as American Christians not to think that somehow all of that is in the future and we're not going to have to face it. We feel it even, I do at least, I feel it encroaching upon us even now as we speak. Where are we going to stand? And I want you to be here next weekend particularly because there's a verse I've never really 
thought much about, delved into in Revelation chapter 1 that has taken on a whole new meaning for me. It's a verse that has helped me and will help you see where you are in terms of which line. Because sometimes we think we're in the right line when in reality is we're setting ourselves up for the wrong line. It's a verse that will help you see if you're being deceived or not or your family's being deceived or not. But obviously, I don't have enough time this morning to delve into that. So make sure you're here next weekend. It'll be very helpful. But now we're brought back to this whole issue. Well, okay, so how is the world going to end then? I mean, if human government is going to fail, and I think you're right, and all these things are going to happen, how does it all end? Our culture is obsessed with it. It is. It's obsessed with how it's all going to end. But unlike a biblical perspective, the the modern-day cultural perspective is that it's probably all going to end in some kind of apocalyptic event. UFOs, global warming, it could be volcanoes, earthquakes, uh, it could be a nuclear bomb, but they all believe it's an apocalyptic event's going to end it. And then humanity is going to be redistributed on the earth. We're going to go back to a tribal system. We'll fight, get stronger, reunify, and humanity will be reborn once again. If you don't believe me, Google post-apocalyptic movies or literature. Not right now, though, please, all right? Not right now, or a thousand fleas infest your home. No, I'm just kidding, all right? All right? But, but why am I bringing that up? Because, you know, there, people know something's coming, right? But if you don't believe in God or don't know about God, you create the ending you think it's going to be. Well, God gives us the ending, and he gave it to Daniel. So I want to go back and I read to you what it says in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, verse 34. Daniel says, while you were watching the statue... A rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It was cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy, says Daniel. In other words, God is at work behind the scenes. And in the very end, God will prove himself. Because he's going to take it all down. He has every, every empire, rearview mirror has been taken down. Hardly a trace left. But there's one more coming, and it too is going to be taken down. But be careful, the Bible warns us, Jesus says specifically, that when that comes, when that day comes, you don't think life is hopeless. You don't think that God is absent. You don't fall into the wrong line and go down the wrong path. Because it will be perilous times, he says. It will be dangerous times, deceitful times. And the words I want to read to you from Jesus are words that some of your brothers and sisters in Christ have lived in the past, former generations, and are living today. 
in some places of the world, what you and I may someday face. Now listen to Jesus' words and uh, Matthew chapter 24. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many and you will hear of wars and threats of wars. But don't panic. Yes, these things must take place. But the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. When Marcia had our first two kids, because our third is adopted, she went into labor with them. And at first, the contractions were far apart. But the closer the babies came to being born, the contractions actually got on top of each other. It was just pure pain. And then came the baby. Earlier in one of her pregnancies, one of our pregnancies, she had Braxton Hicks contractions, which is false labor, and it's like it's coming now. They're quick, and it's like you're going to give labor. And we prayed over our kids because it was too early, and the contractions stopped. In history, history is like a womb. And there are times when it appears the Lord must be coming. Look at what's going on around us. Contraction after contraction after contraction. False labor. Christ doesn't return. The womb relaxes. And it goes through these phases. But God is saying one day, the Lord is saying one day, the contractions won't end. The event will take place. And so he says in verse 9, then you'll be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached through the whole world, so that all nations will hear it. Then the end will come. The end, the rock cut out of the mountain that smashes the statue, the statue in. That rock is Jesus. Look what we read in the New Testament. For instance, the book of Acts. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the, what, cornerstone. In Daniel 2, the mountain that fills the earth. He starts with a spiritual kingdom in our hearts, but the Bible is clear there's a physical kingdom coming someday. Paul goes on and Paul says, as it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. What are you going to do with Christ? Or Peter writes in his epistle, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a royal nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Those who refuse to bow to Christ, those who refuse to accept Christ, those who reject him, eventually will be judged by him. Yes, he came as a lamb that was slaughtered. But don't forget, in Revelation, he comes back as the Lion of Judah. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He indeed is the Lord, the true Lord of all creation. 
And so I conclude with the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I feel good about that. I feel blessed. I am going to be blessed as I read his prophetic words over the next two months. But hang in there. Listen to this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. So you're blessed. But there's a condition to it. Listen again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, or take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And we'll be exploring that next weekend. And like I said, there's a very unique verse we're going to look at next weekend that's going to be a blessing to you, and it's going to be very helpful to you. Word of God, Word of God. So I thought this morning as we begin our series, we would conclude with a song about the cornerstone, about Jesus himself. So as we prepare to do that, would you just bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we're excited, Father, that in this world of confusion and chaos, you have already written to us to tell us ahead of time that it's going to be here, how it's going to happen, how it's going to work, at least, Lord, in, in an overview sense of it. And Father, you've told us that in the end, you win. But Lord, sometimes in the middle of the storm, it is challenging. And sometimes, Father, as this world coalesces itself against you, it's easy to get caught up in, in the culture and, and caught up in wanting to be accepted and wanting to be successful and wanting to be liked. God, I pray that we won't do that to the detriment of our witness the cost of our children and grandchildren and others losing out on the hope of the gospel. Lord, I pray that today we would decide whether you come in our lifetime or not. We know that all of us are going to stand before you someday, some sooner than others, Lord, for none of us are guaranteed our next breath. God, I pray that we would heed those words of your servant Solomon and we would fear you, not man, and that, God, we would ground ourselves on the word of God and on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, whose name we pray, amen.